This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your host, Radio Joe Hughes, and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This week is episode 599, and we welcome Brad Prezant to the show back eight years later. Unbelievable. It's been eight years since we've had him on the show. We're going to talk a little bit about COVID-19 and risk communication. Looking forward to an excellent show with Brad. Before we get started, let's thank our sponsors. They are the reason IAQ Radio is still free. IAQ Radio Association sponsors are the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. Learn more at acgih.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute. Learn more at CIRIScience.org. The Indoor Air Quality Association. Learn more at IAQA.org. AIHA. Healthier workplaces, a healthier world. Learn more at AIHA.org. And the Restoration Industry Association. Learn more at RestorationIndustry.org. IAQ Radio Industry Sponsors are AEML Laboratories. Learn more at AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. Okay, so we uh, no trivia question today. The Z-Man is away for the week, but uh, looking forward to a great show with Brad. Brad is an evidence-based public health scientist with a background in epidemiology, occupational health and hygiene, and ergonomics. Some of you may remember him from operating Prezant Associates in Seattle. He was there for 20-plus years, migrated to New Zealand in 2008, spent three years at Massey University, and now he's in Melbourne, Australia, and we'll have him tell us more about what he's doing there. You also may remember he was one of the co-editors of AIHA's first edition of Recognition, Evaluation, and Control of Indoor Mold. Brad, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Joe. I appreciate your inviting me back. Great to have you. And um, tell folks what, where you're at now. Um, we, we've had, let's see, eight years ago, we had you on the show, and uh, you spent three years at Massey, and now you're in Melbourne. Yeah, it's been uh, quite a transition here. Um, I came to Australia about five years ago after going from consulting for many decades in the U.S. to research at Massey. I worked on some pretty classic occupational health epidemiologic studies and uh, eventually ended up uh, migrating here to Australia. And I'm, for the last five years, I've been back as a consultant and enjoying myself. And how is the COVID-19, what's the current situation in Australia? Lockdown, no lockdown, uh, a lot of cases, rising cases, lowering, where are we at? Uh, I'm in Melbourne and our experience has been a little different than the rest of the country. Uh, Both New Zealand and Australia being islands have had a lot more control because it was a little slower coming here initially. Um, Actually, of the different states here in Australia, uh, really about three of the states uh, have been COVID-free and have pretty much eliminated the virus. We had some uh, major problems here with the people who were returning, Australian citizens who were returning and being quarantined in hotels. And as a result of that not being handled very well, Basically, we had community transmission that escaped from the hotels, and suddenly we went from really single-digit cases uh, in the community to about, I think we topped out at around 700 uh, per day in the community, which was a big problem. And uh, we clamped down, and about six weeks ago went into a very strict lockdown You can't travel more than five kilometers from your house. Pretty much all of the shopping is closed except for supermarkets. Uh, I have and our company has permits to work on the basis that we're doing health and safety or emergency type response for water and mold. Uh, But I think over a quarter of a million people were put out of work when we moved into this strict lockdown. 
which is scheduled to ease somewhat in about a week and a half. And what is the government doing for those that are locked down? They can't work. They don't have any income. Here in the States, we had a, a relief package a long time ago now, and uh, that's pretty much run out. How are they doing it in Australia? We have a, a number of different programs. We have a job keeper and a job seeker program. Uh, there has been some support for people who have to quarantine at home for two weeks uh, if they're working in a critical industry or, or not. Um, they still get compensated at a minimum rate for their time. Uh, so most people here are maybe struggling, uh, but there's been quite a bit of social support. Uh, there's often a number of people, backpackers and people from other countries working here. There's no support whatsoever for that group of people. Uh, so if you're not a citizen, then it's a bit difficult. Um, but for many people, there's been some type of government support. For companies, there's been support as well. Uh, I think you, you qualify if you're a relatively small company and you have a 30% drop in revenue. There's monies that flow in per employee, about $1,500 per week per employee. Uh, but the, it's been devastating to a number of uh, communities, particularly hospitality. Of course, all the restaurants are closed except for takeout. Bars are closed, entertainment is closed, the arts and theaters have been closed for months. So there's a, a very large number of people out of work, but here in Victoria, it's much, much worse than it is in other parts and in other states. And we just yesterday opened up in regional Victoria. So they have some of these types of things are reopening in regional Victoria, but not in the, what we call the central business district in Melbourne, the city of Melbourne. Maybe I misunderstood. So it's the entire country where the bars and restaurants are closed or just the Victoria portion of the country? You know, kind of like the U.S., um, there's a tremendous amount of control and power that the states have. Um, there's a state health department here in Victoria that is pretty much calling the shots for Victoria. There's obviously a federal health minister as well. Uh, and it's, it's like the states where the federal government has significant influence but the states really call the shots. So each state, for example, can close their borders to the other states. And that's been a political point of contention. Uh, many of the states have been closed. We, we can't travel. I can't travel out of uh, Victoria currently. Um, I can't go to New South Wales where Sydney is located. I can't go to uh, any of these uh, locations simply because of the risk of transmission. And particularly when we had such an asymmetric, asymmetric situation with Victoria suddenly having a spike uh, and the other states not having problems and having maybe two, three cases or cases just restricted to people coming in from overseas. And you mentioned travel. Uh, are people allowed to come into Australia right now in just certain states or is it, how is that handled? I think the only reason you could come here is if either you're a citizen returning or a permanent resident who can show that they've been here for a significant period of time prior to several months ago. So you can't, you definitely can't come as a tourist or anything like that. Interesting. And what about the, the whole masking situation here in the States? There's a bit of, I, I think it's played up a little bit more than it. I see it in the real world. I live in a very rural, very conservative area, but when I go to, uh, Walmart or to the Giant Eagle where we get our, our groceries, I, I've only seen one or two people not wearing masks. Um, is that controversial in Australia? You know, it, it never became a political issue here. And the opposition party, we have more of a parliamentary system closer to the UK than to the US. Um, but there's initially was a tremendous amount of cooperation between the party in power and the party out of power and masks never became a political issue. And I would say it's 95% plus compliance with the use of masks. <clears throat> and even in areas like, for example, regional Victoria outside of Melbourne, where there has been in many areas, zero cases, people are still walking around with masks. So it's, it's been pretty high level of compliance here with, with wearing masks. I know this is a tough question to generalize, but I wonder how people in Australia look at the situation here in the United States and if they 
think that, uh, you know, what, what their thoughts are, if you can maybe generalize a little bit at least. <laughs> that's, a, that's not a tough one. You know, I, I, I do keep up on American news and I read the New York Times and I watch CNN and stuff as well as the Australian media. I think CNN has a piece with Jacinda Ardern kind of shaking her head and saying, I just can't understand what's going on in America. I don't get it. And I think most people have that attitude. They really just don't understand how the U.S. is faring so poorly and how they could basically screw things up so badly. Interesting. Well, let's, let's move on a little to um, the COVID risk. Uh, I, I'm going to get the right name. COVID infection risk manager. Um, but before we do, as I understand it, you were influenced by Peter Sandman, the landmark book on risk communication published by AIHA, risk equal hazard plus outrage. We had him on many years ago talking about that, and he's focused on disaster restoration people during that show. I'm wondering if you could tell listeners a little bit about that and then how that influenced what you're doing now. Sure. So we started this project uh, to try and provide some quantitative indication of the risk of infection from operating, uh, from, from being in a, an indoor space. Uh, and we saw that always as a part of a entire risk management program. And from the experience I've had working in indoor environments when there's issues of any kind, uh, particularly if you're uh, doing some type of an indoor air quality assessment and the building has been evacuated, people uh, are not necessarily very anxious to, uh, to reoccupy the building. I first discovered Peter Sandman's work when he worked with the AIHA and published the book that you referred to. Um, and it became clear that it was a really valuable tool for risk communication uh, and it provided a framework to understand how people look at these issues and how the, this vast difference between how risk scientists or scientists in general look at these issues and how the general public looks at this issue. And you mentioned the basic thesis of risk equals hazard plus outrage. And Sandman's point is that experts focus exclusively on the hazard and ignore the outrage and the public focuses on the outrage and ignores the hazard. So basically, experts overestimate the risk when the hazard is high and the outrage is low, and the public overestimates the risk uh, when the outrage is high and the hazard is low. So basically, you've got two groups of people completely on different planets looking at this stuff uh, and understanding that how this would apply to reoccupying buildings, because that's really the challenge that we're facing with COVID, at least particularly here in Victoria, where none of these buildings are operating at this point. Courtrooms aren't operating, public buildings aren't operating. And we're talking about how do you begin reoccupying these buildings and the perceptions of the public are gonna be way more important than what the risk scientists say the risks of reoccupancy are. Mm -hmm. So it became clear as, as we began thinking about this quantitative tool for in essence doing the hazard portion of that equation, that if we didn't deal with the outrage portion and we didn't deal with people's willingness or lack of willingness or suspicions in terms of reoccupying the building, that we would have missed the mark and we would not have an effective system to permit people to reoccupy the building. And we're seeing the same thing with the vaccines. You know, if, if the actual hazard associated with the vaccine is relatively low, but people perceive that vaccines cause autism and all sorts of other things that are undesirable, then it's gonna diminish the take up of the vaccine. And, and of course, you've seen the same numbers I've seen suggesting that a very high percentage of people will not accept a vaccine despite what the risk scientists say about the safety of that vaccine. So understanding that, that we've got two different groups operating with different basic frameworks here is really the key to not only providing a quantitative risk management tool, but actually a risk communication program because our calculator, I could explain this later, but our calculator deals with and manages that difference in perception between the two groups. Interesting, very interesting. I like that. Uh, let's, let's also uh, talk about 
voluntary versus coerced action and how that kind of fits into the whole uh, risk equal hazard plus outrage. Yeah. Um, for those who aren't familiar with uh, Sandman's book, he goes through about 12 questions to ask. Uh, and they include things like, is it a natural risk or an industrial risk? Is it familiar or exotic? Is it controlled by me or others? And is it voluntary or coerced? And I imagine as I'm going through these in your mind, you're thinking, how do these each relate to COVID-19? And of course, uh, COVID-19 is an exotic thing. It can be catastrophic. Um, and going back into a building, if your employer says, hey, you know, go back to that building, uh, it's safe to reoccupy, uh, that may not work. Uh, or even worse, uh, if you want to get paid, go back and work in that building. That really is, is feeds the outrage uh, because it's more focused on coercion than a voluntary reoccupancy. So what we wanted to do was come up with something that would fit better in this context of Sandman's perspective, uh, fit better into the voluntary end of things. So uh, when we talk a little more detail about the calculator and demonstrate it, uh, we have basically a mode that's intended to run on someone's phone uh, or laptop or iPad, any device whatsoever. And it's intended be, to be used by occupants. So we're putting the power and the control in their hands, provided they're trusting of the actual tool, then they have the ability to decide, yes, I'm willing to go into that room for that amount of time with that, those numbers of people or not. So that's, that's in a sense how we're trying to, to make reoccupancy a voluntary activity as opposed to a coerced activity, because it's just not going to work if we attempt to coerce people to return. Very interesting. And, and where did the idea for developing this and developing in the, in the way that you have come from? Is that you're now at uh, VA Sciences. You're the chief scientific officer, occupational health consultancy, and they've got a training facility and, and a microbiology lab. Um, where did this idea come from? I assume you work a lot with government agencies? We do. We work with a variety of clients, and we have a pretty awesome team, including someone who is a full-time IT-type person who really takes the credit for the user interface that you'll see and the actual tool. So my approach came to, to developing this. It came from being brought into a courthouse with multiple rooms and being asked, how are we gonna be able to reoccupy this building? And of course, being an occupational hygienist, we're very solutions oriented as a, as a species. Uh, mm -hmm. So the first thing I start thinking about is, you know, how can we modify the building management system to bring in 100% fresh air? How can we increase the air exchange within these different spaces by tweaking the terminal box settings? Perhaps how can we set up uh, some type of control of the airflow such that uh, we could minimize the movement of air from one person to another as one person exhales. Is that air, is it possible to direct that air in some manner to the building return and then have it filtered or treated in some way so that it returns to the room in a clean form? So I began thinking about really redesigning, designing and redesigning systems that would push us more towards a displacement type flow where the air flows in in the lower part of the room and gets taken out in the upper part of the room as opposed to what we see here in Australia and of course in the US as well, which is really a turbulent mixing model. And if you think about it, nothing could be worse in terms of distributing contagion than a turbulent mixing model. If you're blowing air all around the room with the intent of mixing it as much as possible to create uniformity of temperature, you are also distributing all the contaminants that people exhale to the greatest extent. So as I started running through all of those things in my mind, it became clear that I was two, three, four, five steps ahead of where the clients were. And they mm -hmm. needed to just basically understand uh, for any and, any and all conditions, what actually is the risk involved here? What is a room that's problematic? Uh, you know, as we went from room to room, and I said, well, this room is problematic because it's, it's a much lower ceiling. It's going to be much more crowded. The amount of space per person is much less. 
all of that needed to be somehow communicated. Um, and of course, if you're doing these types of IEQ assessments for you know, decades, these things are kind of second nature, but to most uh, building managers or, or managers in general, these, are, these things are totally off their radar screen. So it became clear that we needed some type of, of methodology to estimate it. We began with the concept of shared air, uh, and then quickly that evolved more in the direction of what has been classically done uh, in the area of infection, which, and we could talk a little bit more about this background, uh, I think in 1953, 1955, a physician named Wells came up with a model uh, that was based on the transmission of disease and defined a quantity called a, a quanta, which basically was the amount of uh, contagious virus or uh, whatever it might be, bacteria, that was exhaled that would result in infection among 63% of the exposed persons. And uh, that quanta value was able to be derived from experiences, uh, real experiences in the real world, where they were able to look at situations where people were together and there was an issue of airborne transmission. And certain types of diseases transmit very uh, efficiently via airborne transmission mechanisms. Measles is probably the, the classic because it's highly contagious from an airborne route, others less so. Um, but for each particular type of organism, uh, if you can identify what those quanta values are, the mathematics is not terribly complex. Uh, and uh, someone named Riley worked over some of Wells' original work, and we ended up for the last 20, 30 years with something called the Wells-Riley uh, equation for estimating the risk of infection indoors. And that's, that's strictly an airborne infection risk. So our model and an airborne approach is not addressing, for example, what happens when you sneeze or cough on someone or the extent to which someone who's, who has sneezed or coughed into their hands touch a surface and you touch that surface afterwards, what we call fomite transmission. So, so the, the models that we're working off of, which are pretty well established and a number of the other calculators we'll look at use the same models, um, are, have been around for quite a while. We haven't invented anything here. We're simply using stuff that's in the scientific literature that's, that's well accepted. There, there are other ways to estimate infection risk, but the Wells-Riley one is relatively simple and relatively well accepted. You know, it's very, really interesting the way you just described all that, because I, I can see how, you know, in hospitals, they may be more familiar with this, but if you go to a school or to any other building, government building, where they've had past issues, say, water damage or mold, they they don't look at it the same way. So you have to kind of change their frame of reference when you put this together, I think. And I think that's an important point for people to keep in mind when, uh, you know, when they're, when they're trying to deal with this particular issue. Why don't we go ahead, John, and um, go ahead and take a look at the at the calculator here, the, the risk manager. And uh, Brad, maybe you can walk folks through it a little bit and, and kind of get us started. We had put together a very basic one. I don't know if you want to use that one. That's fine with me. Um, but um, why don't we walk John through it and have him show folks how this works. Okay. So uh, Joe, you have logged in previously um, and you have credentials to use the calculator. So it says, welcome, Joe, and you have previously worked with a building. So if you just press start analysis, we'll go to the building that you last worked with. There is information stored in the database of the program. When you log out, it stays there uh, for this thing, Melbourne example building. And uh, the, you basically are given two, two factors to input, the number of occupants that are gonna be meeting in a room in this building and the duration that that meeting is gonna go. So if you push that up to eight or 10 or 12 or something like that, there we go. And if you go from an hour to say one hour, two hours, okay. And we'll leave that off for now. We'll leave the toggle switch for face mask off and push start analysis. And what you have there as you scroll down on the left is a comparison. In this case, there were 24 rooms 
Um, for each room, and we'll talk about this later, but for each room, we have input the volume of that room based upon the length, the width, and the height, and whatever we want to assume as the volume of the furnishings, 10%. Uh, and then we have input the air changes per hour based upon what the building management system says is the airflow flowing through the terminal box. And what we're seeing is a rank order of rooms based upon the least likely to transmit and as we go down, the greater likelihood of transmitting all the way to the bottom. So the, this would be the simplest implementation and this would be what you could run. Let's say you're about to go into the building and you're holding your phone in your hand. You pull this up and you say, I have a meeting. I've got six or seven or eight people and it's gonna go for an hour and a half. Which room should I choose? Or if you're scheduling someone or a group, you would say, which, is, which of the rooms that are available would be the best for this. And uh, you would see the green, yellow, red. If you decrease the number of occupants on the right side of your screen, you'll get, uh, as we go down in terms of occupants and or how about duration of occupancy, as we change each of these things the other way, mm -hmm. you'll see that uh, we go to green for some of the rooms based upon uh, all of the time and the number of people that are present in the room. And that's so this would be the simplest implementation. And then if you wanted to uh, have a meeting and then take a lunch break, based upon the air changes per hour in that room, the time to reoccupancy that you see on the left in green, that's the basically a very simple calculation of uh, what is the time it would take to reach 1% of what the concentration of a contaminant in the space. So for somebody who's done work with tracer gases or with carbon dioxide, a lot of these calculations are relatively similar. So if you were watching uh, CO2 degrade, it's the same mathematics that you would use for that type of a, of a degradation. So for example, room 4D, the second room in 46 minutes, whatever contamination was in the air would fall to 1% of its maximum value. I see, so, okay. So now if you go over to the right and you click advanced mode and you scroll down there on that right side, there's some basic assumptions here. And the first one is the percentage of time an infected person is speaking. It turns out that the emission of quanta the infectious portion of the, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 organism is, is very much dependent on, upon how much air you're moving through your respiratory system. So the emission of quanta for someone simply at rest and breathing is about 16 quanta per hour. But for someone who is speaking, say, in front of electric hall, it could be over 100, perhaps 120 or 130 quanta per hour. For someone who's singing, uh, and for those who have followed some of the news, there was a choir practice in Skagit County in Washington State where a very high percentage of people were infected despite uh, a lack of intimate contact. And that is often attributed to the fact that people were expelling a lot of air through their respiratory system. And, ex and wh whomever was infected was emitting a large amount of quanta. So uh, this could be adjusted, and obviously as you adjust it, it's showing a difference on the left-hand side. You're also seeing on the left-hand side suddenly all these numbers. So when we initially started working with clients here, we found that they really didn't want to see those numbers. So that's why in the first version, we've taken them out. Uh, but whomever enters the data pertaining to the building uh, they can provide access or, or block access to other people to these basic assumptions and then to the advanced assumptions that I'll show you later. So the building definer has control over what people can see. Uh, and if you're a scientist, of course, you want to see all these numbers on the left. Uh, probability of infection if a speaker is infected and probability of infection if an occupant is infected. And the difference is the reason it's so much lower for the occupant is because they're emitting much less quanta of uh, SARS-CoV-2. So now you could 
you can continue on deeper into the program on the right and there's air cleaners. Before you do the advance, we could, why don't you toggle the air cleaner switch? So now with air cleaners, we simply go down and put the slider to the appropriate value and that will reduce the probability of infection uh, because it's cleaning some of the infective material out of the air. You could add another air cleaner above where you are and for that second air cleaner, set the flow rate. You know, we're all in cubic meters per hour here. We're going we're gonna to have to have a U.S. version, huh? <laughs> yeah, I noticed that. <laughs> when I was and in uh, if you go down farther, you can see that uh, we have these advanced assumptions if you enable those. IAQ Radio Industry Sponsors are Particles Plus Engineers and Manufacturers of Feature-Rich Particle Counters and Air Quality Monitoring Instrumentation. Learn more at ParticlesPlus.com. Count on us. Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at HealthyIndoors.com. And AEML Laboratories, free FedEx shipping, great pricing, same-day results, and never a rush fee. Learn more at AEMLinc.com. Association sponsors are the Indoor Air Quality Association, a multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Learn more at IAQA.org. The American Industrial Hygiene Association, AIHA. Healthier workplaces, a healthier world. Learn more at AIHA.org. And RIA, the Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry. Network with leaders. Learn more at RestorationIndustry.org. Siri, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute. See more deeply through science and research. Learn more at SiriScience.org. That's C-I-R-I Science.org. A-C-G-I-H, advancing the careers of professionals working in the environmental health, industrial hygiene, and safety communities. Interested in defining their science at A-C-G-I-H org. So the first thing is that you could change when, when the air changes per hour, which are entered in terms of uh, liters per second flowing into the room uh, or cubic feet per minute, if you, if you wish, when that's entered into the model at the beginning, um, those will govern the air changes per hour in the room. But if you leave some of the, or all of those fields blank, the model substitutes a default value, and that's what that 2.4 air changes per hour is. So if you have openable windows and you think that a much better sense of the air changes per hour when it isn't specified is seven air changes per hour or nine air changes per hour, you just slide that slider over. And now it's based upon uh, the air changes that you're, you're assuming. And if you want to override what has been previously entered, let's say you want to try a bunch of different models, you simply apply default air changes to all rooms and that overrides whatever has been entered into the field. And you'll notice that things are moving on the left-hand side when you do that. Each of those rooms that were defined there had a airflow in based upon the building management system. So that's why, uh, when you change the default ones, it, they didn't move because there were numbers in all those fields. Okay. If you go down, you could, uh, let's say your speaker is an opera singer. You're probably somewhere around 300 quanta per hour as opposed to a loud speaker. And of course, that's going to increase the risk of infection. Uh, if you were an infected occupant, you could adjust that slider as well and that's gonna affect the occupant infected scenario, but not the speaker infected uh, scenario. And then based upon the activity of the occupants, so we've set the default at 0.8 cubic meters per hour, which is kind of very light activity, not, not sitting still, but not running around. If you push it up to 2.5, that might be a better estimate of a yoga class, mm -hmm. for example. 
And the reason that we have problems with higher breathing rates is that you're cycling more air through your lungs, you have more risk of infection. Interesting. And then there are some factors pertaining to the virus, the decay rate of the virus in air and deposition to surfaces, um, which allow you to change those assumptions. These have come from the literature based upon research that's been done in the last several months with SARS-CoV-2. And some of that research is pre-publication, you know, so these things, of course, may change in the next few weeks and months. Uh, and you can simply go in and change whatever the default values are. Finally, um, if you have implemented the use face masks, if you go back to the top. Yeah, everything we've been doing so far was without a face mask. Yeah, so now we're going to put face masks on, and you'll see right away that has a dramatic impact on the risk. Um, so, for example, if you go to duration of occupancy and increase occupancy with the face masks on, you'll see that you could spend much more time in there, um, or you could have many more people if face masks are being used versus not. So, uh, you know, you could do a kind of a what if thing here and say, if I have five people, can I go for three hours, or how many people would it take? If I have to have a three hour meeting, can I invite five or must I stick to six? And maybe we'll wear face masks, then I could put more people in it. So you can do all this type of what if modeling and see an immediate result on the calculator. Right, so leave, leave it toggled for face masks and go back down to the bottom assumptions. And you'll see that here you could set the mask efficiency for emission. So what attenuation of the exhaled quanta are you getting based upon the type of mask you're using? And then what's the mask efficiency for intake? So these default values are just very, very average values. Um, and if you're wearing, for example, uh, N95, you'll see that the mask efficiency for intake for the N95, if you change it from 64% to 95%, right below where you are. Mask, there you go, John. Turn it, take it to 95. Yeah, taking that, and then that would be what an N95 would, would provide. Interesting. In that context. So mm -hmm. we've, we've gone through, in essence, all of the, uh, changes that you can make in the model in its current form. So what we've done now, and we'll be implementing next week, it's kind of in getting just finished up at this point and polished, is that here we're comparing occupancy in any one of these rooms and comparing one room to another. But when we started rolling this out with some of our clients, the feedback we were getting was, well, what if you were going through an airport, for example, and you wanted to know what the total risk was from that experience. You go through one airport, then you get in an airplane, then you go through another airport and pick up your bags. How would you model that? So we realized that instead of being room-centered or geographically centered, that we needed an approach that was also uh, experiential and person-centered. So the person who comes into an airport may spend 10 minutes uh, in the waiting area for check-in. Then they may spend 10 minutes with the check-in person. Then they may spend 15 minutes in the pharmacy, 45 minutes in the restaurant, 45 minutes in the waiting room. Then they would get on the airplane for an hour and 20 minutes. Then they would exit through the uh, luggage area. And that would be the end of their experience. So what we've done is we've now created another option where you can model that. So instead of having rooms down the left side, you have each stop, so to speak. And we just simply sum the probability of infection from each of the stops, each of the quote unquote rooms, uh, in order to get a total probability of infection for the day or for the event. And we found that for certain types of clients, that's much more of a relevant uh, question that they're asking. I've got a quick Text question, are these total air changes or outside air exchanges per hour? These Right now, we're modeling them as, as uh, outdoor air. We're assuming that all of the air flowing into the space either has passed through a filter that's removed any residual virus or there's been a sufficient amount of dilution 
through the return air system of the building such that uh, it's not, there's no contaminated air being re-entered. But it's, it's very easy to just simply add an additional uh, option that says, what degree of recirculation are you working on? Mm -hmm. In which case we would uh, simply attenuate the air changes per hour. Those are the assumptions that are built into the model. And even in its simplest form, when you can't see all of the uh, changes down below, uh, uh, you know, the most simple level of user can see what the assumptions are in the model there. Where does that 2.4 air changes per hour come from? That, that comes from what would be a minimally ventilated room. Uh, here in Australia in heating season, we have just a dramatic cooling season. So pretty much we see somewhere around 15 to 20% of the airflow, the maximum airflow through a variable volume system in the wintertime to provide heating. So we have, it's pretty warm here. It never gets below freezing. Of course, our freezing is zero. Uh, so it's, it's really never below zero in Melbourne. So our, our heating needs are relatively minimal. Uh, I rode my bike through the whole winter through this past whole winter period with no problems whatsoever. There's certainly never ice on the road or even black ice or anything like that. Uh, but we do have a pretty intense need for cooling in the summertime. So that was based upon what, what we were seeing in typical commercial central business district, downtown type buildings. And, and people have the option of changing that based on the particular building or room and taking into consideration the time of year and whether you're in the air conditioning mode or, or heating mode, I guess. That's right. So now you're, you're in the uh, building creation. The, when you created that building in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, you had to enter the address and it, you know, it identified that building. Um, when we had the initial implementation of this, instead of assuming that someone who was infected would be present in the rooms, which is what this current model does, we were actually pulling data from the Johns Hopkins uh, prevalence of COVID-19 in a particular county or city or something like that, and working off of the random probability that an infected person would be in the room. Uh, but the numbers we were getting, particularly in Australia, where the prevalence of COVID-19 is so low, the, the numbers we were getting for the percentage infected were like 0. .0000 something, uh, and people just couldn't relate to that from a risk communication perspective. The question that people kept asking was, well, that's fine, but what if one of those people happens to be in the room with me? <laughs> mm -hmm. So they were not really interested in the random probability of an infected person being present. It was more, let's assume worst case scenario. So we took that out of the model. Um, obviously, we could put that back in if it becomes relevant, but we've taken it out. So I see, I see you've added three rooms here. And for one of the three rooms, the office, you've specified an airflow. So the model is going to go to 2.4 uh, air changes per hour for video room two and video room one in the absence of values there. But it will use the 22 liters per second flow for the office. If you scroll down, of course, you could add as many rooms as you want here. This is where you set the bounds for the green, yellow, and red bars. So uh, you could just slide those to whatever position is appropriate. So uh, the and has the ability to change the, the bounds there. Yeah, yeah. So now I think in an ideal world, we would look to cognizant public health authorities to actually define what those were. So they might say, if you could create an environment or if you're modeling, let's say you're modeling a meat packing plant or something like that, and you have a large rectangular room that you've input its dimensions and the air changes and this and that, if they say to you, you could operate with as many people as you want, as long as you keep the risk below 1% uh, for the green and between 1% and 5% for the yellow, and anything more than 5% you, you need to put as red. So if, if that type of guidance was forthcoming, from public health authorities, then each employer or each business uh, can occupy, instead of using some type of a general guideline, like one person per four square meters that we've used here, or 25% of typical occupancy, 
you could have something that's much more risk-based because if you go with something like 25% of occupancy, for some businesses, they're going to be struggling to stay afloat or they'll have to stay closed because they can't operate with 25%. But if they have a very well-ventilated large room, they could probably operate very safely with 65%. So this allows them to, uh, you know, with the right public health guidance, do a quantitative analysis and make something that's scientifically based and rationally based rather than just this random people per square meter well, per square this foot. This is our goal, huh? I also wanted to, before we go to the roundup and bring Pete Consigli in, I wanted to ask about other programs out there and, and maybe you could quickly go through some of the other programs available on the, you know, on the market and, and uh, maybe kind of compare and contrast what you do versus what they do. Sure. Um, many of the other programs out there, for example, Jose Jimenez and Shelley Miller uh, at the University of Colorado have come out with a very similar program in terms of the calculations. It's the same Wells-Riley. Um, this is the estimation of COVID-19 aerosol transmission. Um, and you can see that the same variables on the left under the column labeled value, the same variables that we're putting in are going into this model. So length of room, width of room, height, the volume is calculated. Um, the duration of the event is on uh, number 24. I don't know, I doubt viewers can see the numbers on the spreadsheet, but that's the time. Um, in this case, the ventilation with outdoor air is set at three air changes per hour, and they've specified a decay rate of 0.62, a deposition surface is a 0.3. So uh, we are using uh, air cleaners, but that's the same thing as what they're doing with additional control measures. So you could have UV, germicidal radiation, or air cleaners, something like that that's adding to the first order loss rate. Uh, and then Ultimately, you add the number of people, uh, the number of infected people, um, and, and you get a concentration of quanta in the air. Somewhere there, there's, it's, uh, it calculates the actual quanta in the air, and then based upon that value, the probability of infection. And so I think what, what we're doing mathematically is, is pretty much the same thing. If you, if you model... We've compared our results with, with this calculator, with other calculators. You know, they're, they're very similar within one or two decimal point type things. So the, the maths are not any different. What we have tried to do is provide something that's not only easy to use uh, and allows you to compare one space versus another, which would be quite cumbersome if you had to create 24 different spreadsheets. Uh, for 24 different rooms and then try and somehow aggregate the data and sort them. That would be a bit of an exercise, a time-consuming exercise. So we've tried to create a tool that could be used by a building manager, not a scientist. So, so most of the calculators out there are scientists developing calculators for scientists, not necessarily for the public or for much less trained individuals uh, to use in a risk communication mode. And we will include links to these various other calculators uh, and programs on the blog. And um, real quick, before we go to the roundup here, Brad, what will people be able to take and use your calculator? I mean, what, what's the plan? Well, um, at this point, yes. Um, We've invested several months of developmental time and where uh, if you go to the web page, I think I sent you a copy of the web page that has a description of the calculator. You could fill out not, not the actual calculator itself, but the web page that has a description. I can uh, give that to you if, if you don't have it. Um, sure. But the... Um, <clears throat> The idea is, is in many cases, a company is going to want to have some hand-holding. So our goal is to partner with someone who could assist the client, perhaps provide the air changes per hour by going through the building management system and guide them on implementing this and be available as a consultant for them. So we're looking to partner in that regard with 
other indoor air quality professionals who see that this is something that they can implement for their clients. I see. And there's a, there's a screen that you could fill out for more information and get a demo version that you could use to show to your clients uh, and explain how it would be used. So that's, that's how we see uh, implementing it. Okay. And let's, uh, let's go to the roundup there, John. Let's bring in Pete Consigli, the restoration industry's global watchdog. Pete, I know you uh, are very interested in, in goings-on down under. That's one of your favorite places. I wonder if you have any questions or comments for Brad. Uh, that, that's, what, that's actually one of my favorite expressions, goings-on down under, because that's a kind of a UK-British type of term. I, um, well, first of all, very interesting, Brad, and uh, you know a lot of technical stuff there. I got to tell you, Joe, I have a lot of respect for Cliff trying to keep track to, to take the notes to do the blog, particularly for this show. Uh, Brad, I am going to actually send you an email so you can send me the link for the uh, calculator. And uh, so I got a couple things. First of all, I, I, I got some stupid questions. Um, maybe I missed this. What's a quanta? A quanta is the basically the infectious dose, the amount of uh, contagion. In this case, we're talking about SARS-CoV-2, but you could be talking about measles or some other airborne infectious organism that would result in 63% of the persons exposed developing the disease. And uh, Professor Morawska here in Queensland University of Technology in Australia has done some work specifically with SARS-CoV-2 to get those numbers for uh, for SARS-CoV-2. So there's been research looking at to what extent is SARS-CoV-2 more or less transmissible than measles or flu or other things like that. So that's a okay. unique number for each, each organism. And Brad, Thank you. let me just follow up on that. Um, as I understand it, maybe I'm wrong, that the quanta hasn't varied much between symptomatic and asymptomatic people. Is that accurate? Yeah, it, we're still obviously trying to figure a lot of this stuff out, but that's a, probably what we can think of as a very crude estimate of, of likelihood and really doesn't go into the extent to which it would relate to being asymptomatic or symptomatic. Yeah, it's so simply some... whether or not the person becomes infected. Okay. Doesn't, doesn't so, take into account symptomatic or not symptomatic. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Brad, one other thing. Uh, what's the actual name of your tool of the calculator? Is there, is there like a name for an app, a name for the tool? What, what are the different names that are used associated with the whole program? Uh, we're calling it a COVID calculator, a uh, quantitative okay. risk tool. All right, COVID calculator and quantitative risk tool. Okay. Um, risk manager. Other, right. Uh, I mean, it, have you guys kind of been planning on trademarking this stuff, doing that? You haven't gotten that far? Yeah, I think, you know, we're hoping that, uh, you know, because of its ease of use and its applicability and risk communication that people copy it in a way. Um, hopefully that would be the, uh, the best, uh, what I say, imitation is the, uh, is the best expression of flattery and yeah, the sincerest uh, but, form of flattery. Know, Although a lot, a lot of times people don't always agree to that. Particularly, they kind of get beat out of you know uh, if they if they feel like they deserve some kind of money and someone stole the idea. But uh, I get the point. <laughs> yeah, it's um, uh, it's not so easy. I mean, we're talking many you know tens of thousands of lines of code. So yeah. uh, implementing it. I mean, again, you know, what you can do with many of the scientific calculators out there is very similar to what we're doing. It's just the way we've packaged it that creates the value in some cases. Right. So, so, my, so my, my question then is, uh, when is this actually going to be available to the market? It seems like this, this, our show today is kind of a preview of it. No, it's available. It's currently available in the form that you okay. saw it in. So the exact model that you saw there is currently available. And next week, so, we'll be releasing the model that tracks an individual through a building in the way I described that. Okay, I got it. So basically, this is something that somebody can purchase, or is this like 
do would they have to hire a service to, to help them with it? What what's the things with that? Yeah, either I mean it's possible that a client could could simply use it uh, in their buildings, and then we would arrange for some type of a lease in that regard, a lease monthly payment, uh, or okay. and, and that would be unlimited use. So the idea would that you would be wanting to turn this out to the general public, to all the people who are using that building. Um, okay. so, so yeah, okay, I get it. So it's got it's kind of almost like in that application, it'd be like somebody getting a software license to use something for use or something. Exactly. But, but, I, but I would think that this, there's a scientific kind of complexity to this that I would think there are, it's going to create jobs for consultants and people to advise what building owners, occupants through the process. Am, am I, did I miss that or is that? that no, that's right? exactly the idea is that it may okay. be that you as a consultant would do the definition of the building and you would have access to the highest levels of expert to change the various assumptions in the model but you might not release it to the building owner, giving them or giving the user the ability to change all of the underlying assumptions. You might only let them go one layer in, for example, and change the percentage of time speaking in the presence or absence of, a, of an air cleaner. Okay, all right, I got it. I, you know, I, uh, in looking at the pretty extensive show notes, and Joe mentioned this before, well, I'll draft a blog up and you're going to have to do some input, but there are quite a few links in there that he talked about that we'll be sending out that'll kind of reinforce all this stuff. So he's done a good job with that. So I, I got to figure you'll be going to bed after this. And by the time you wake <laughs> up, the draft, well, no, by the time you wake up, the draft blog will be there for you to review and we'll get that, uh, you know, reviewed by early next week. So it'll be sent out with the, with the general notice for next week's right. show. Um, the only other question that I have for you, I actually texted this to Joe, but then he'd moved on to a different topic. When early on, uh, before you got into the calculator, you, you all were talking about just general travel restrictions and a lot of that stuff. The one thing that I did notice, it, it's kind of generally accepted, you know, New Zealand jumped on things really quickly and then they had this kind of no infection thing, I don't know, a month or two ago. And then um, some of my Aussie friends said that travel between New, uh, New Zealand and Australia was opened up. People could go back and forth. You know, a lot of the Aussies ski over there in your wintertime, which is our summer and et cetera. Now, is that still happening? And has that changed because of the reinfections and some of the lockdowns in the Aussie states? And what's going on in New Zealand? Anything you can share there? And is travel still allowed between those two countries, which is kind of similar to traveling from the U.S. to Canada? I mean, here, the Canadian border has been closed for a long time. And we, if there's any travel that goes back and forth here between Canada and U.S. that's approved, uh, they gotta, people got to go into quarantine. Any, any comments on that? Yeah, no, I think the, the, that what they were telling you is incorrect. There was discussions okay. about creating a New Zealand-Australian bubble, but that never happened. Uh, and there was some talk about approaching that, and then we had the incident here in Victoria where we had a high level of infections, and that got taken off the table at least for several months. So there has been virtually no travel. In fact, I don't even believe that Air New Zealand is flying in from Australia at present. So it's very difficult if you are a New Zealander trying to return to New Zealand from Australia, actually getting a flight even though technically you're able to come in and quarantine, but getting a flight is difficult or impossible. So there hasn't, there hasn't been any travel between the two countries. All right. Well, I do, I do know a well-known friend of ours, I'll, I'll let him become anonymous, um, did actually uh, have to go to New Zealand on business and uh, they, uh, you know, you have to get all the approvals and they had a quarantine for two weeks or whatever it was uh, yeah. once they got there before he could, you know, go in. So it is strict. I mean, there are provisions where you can go, but like yeah, you said, yeah. Brad, it's not for tourism. <laughs> not <laughs> no, for no tourism. Yeah. I mean, ironically, um, New Zealand, uh, Australians are not permitted to leave Australia unless they have a valid business reason or right. a compassion reason. And then they have to apply multiple times to get approval. So you don't have the right to simply leave without approval. Yeah. So uh, one final question, and I'll turn it back over to, to our host, uh, Mr. Joe. Um, what's your gut? Because I've been getting a lot of different feelings from a lot of my Aussie mates that 
when do you think things will be opened up and they may be able to be traveled to North America? Have you got any handle on it or is it just total <laughs> speculation that, may, that has no value at all? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's really an unknown. I mean, right now we've gone from 700 infections per day in Victoria down to 35, 45. We're, less, we're averaging a 14-day 14, 14 average, just about 50, just slightly below that. And that's exceeded expectations. Um, so we're currently at around 35, just in terms of the daily infections. They didn't expect us at this point, six weeks into the lockdown, to be doing any better than, say, 50 per day. But the last tail often really stretches out. So, um, you know, for example, New South Wales is down in the single digits in terms of new infections per day. So, you know, I think it may very well be six to nine months or a year from now before they actually open it up. I think it really depends upon how effective the, the vaccine is. If the vaccine is 60% effective, that's, that's really not going to cut it in terms of the health departments being willing to take people who are vaccinated but may also be susceptible or carriers. You know, that's going to be problematic. Yeah. Well, listen, I, it's, it's unfortunate because obviously a lot of people are going stir crazy all over the world with, with all of this. But, you know, it is what it is. And I, you know, from, you know, with me, it's certainly, uh, you know, a lot of us on the show, we're all involved in the associations. It's just so doggone hard for planning. You know, as we look to 2021, can people travel? Are we still going to be doing virtual? You know, can we have that interaction again? So I, I tend to agree. I, I think a lot of the uh, the word on the street, if you were in the U.S., is that I don't know that people are going to be lined up to take the vaccine when it comes out right away. I mean, there's a lot of people that don't take flu shots. So, uh, you know, we'll see what happens with all of that. But, um, you know, just hoping that 2021 is for the best and 2020 kind of gets flushed away. It hasn't been a very good year. But um, uh, it's good to uh, see you even if virtually there, Mr. Brad. And uh, good, good luck with everything and all your work down there in, uh, in Victoria and in Oz. Well, thank you. And before we end, I just want to put in a plug for a couple of the conferences. I'm the current vice president of ISIAC, the International Society of Indoor Air Quality and Climate. And we have something coming up in November that was postponed from this past summer, your summer, uh, in South Korea. That's going to be a virtual conference. And you can all look forward to a conference in Hawaii next year as well. Uh, that's going to be in part of the Healthy Buildings uh, um, series of conferences that ISIAC puts on, also one in, in Norway. So um, we're excited about those conferences. And if you haven't seen information about indoor air in Korea, that's, that should be an excellent conference. Again, that's going to be a virtual conference. Yeah, so Brad, just so uh, one of the other uh, sponsors, Siri on here, John Downey, uh, he actually is working, was working with Richard Shaughnessy, and they're going to actually hold their event in Hawaii in conjunction with ISIAC. So hopefully if all yes. the travel opens up, that's a halfway point between Australia and the U.S. and a little bit more halfway our way. But uh, that would be great if we all could see each other in Hawaii next June. Yeah, yeah that would be great. Uh, and if, if you guys want to check out the uh, web description of our tool, it's at HTTPS colon slash slash, that whole preliminary stuff. And it's vue-covid-product.web.app. And we will put that in the blog as well. Brad, thanks so much for joining us. Any final thoughts before we wrap this up? Uh, we really appreciate it. I, I tell you, when, I, uh, when you started the program, um, I just thought I was driving in my car because I, I, I've been a faithful listener for years. And hearing your music, you know, it's like the advertising jingle that doesn't doesn't leave your brain. Uh, so uh, I thought I must be driving, you know, it's the middle of the night. What am I doing driving? So Joe has that, that, real... that unique sign off about the loyal listeners, Joe. I love that one. A real appreciation to you guys for uh, doing this. Well, thank you for joining us, Brad. We, re we really appreciate you coming back. It's been too long. We'll have to get back together again much sooner than eight years this next time. Um, thanks for joining us today on IAQ Radio Plus. Brad Prezant, great to see you. And uh, looking forward, by the way, we're, I've got a call with Richard this afternoon. We may well be a media sponsor of that uh, 
Healthy Indoors 2021 in Honolulu, Hawaii. That should be interesting. And like Pete said, that's a great middle point for uh, folks from the U.S. and folks from Asia and from Australia and so forth. So uh, looking forward to it and uh, looking forward to working with you on a little of the practice to research part of that. Uh, that should be great. All right. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Brad Prezant. I want to thank him again. I want to thank John. You got to have faith at the controls, Pete Consigli, the restoration industry's global watchdog, filling in for the Z-Man this week. Also want to make sure we thank our growing group of loyal listeners. We'll be back next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening. 